Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all to the second lecture in our series, which is sponsored by a Cheryl K. Coleman and Margaret E. Gateau professorship at the Oregon Humanities Center. The professorship is providing enrichment opportunities for my course about ancient Jewish art and architecture, and I'd like to thank the Oregon Humanities Center for its support. Today, Yash Elsner will be speaking to us. He is professor of late antique art at Oxford University and Humphrey Payne Senior Research Fellow in Classical Art at Corpus Christi College, Oxford. He works on art and its many receptions in antiquity and Byzantium, including into modernity. He is the author or editor of many books, including Art and the Roman Viewer, The Art of the Roman Empire, and Empires of Faith in Late Antiquity. He has received several honors and awards. Most notably, he was elected a foreign honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow of the British Academy, and a member of the Max Planck Society. I am excited that he will give today's lecture entitled Dury Europus in its conceptual context between Eurasian fantasy and mandate archeology. span Please welcome Professor Elsner. Thank you very much. Now I'm going to begin by sharing my screen. Let's see if this works. One second. Hello, is that, can you see? Yes. Perfect. So I'll start. As part of his doctoral thesis of 2019, uh, my Chicago student, Joe Bonney, conducted a detailed review of all the extant accounts of the excavation of the famous Christian building um, uh, of 19, uh, in 1932 during the fifth season of the dig at Dura Europos. And there you see, the uh, on the on the screen you've got the the site uh, with the site map um, uh, the street uh, in which the Christian building stands and here block M8 which has got Christian building um, in the, in green. He drew on published discussions as well as the daybook and object register preserved in the Yale archives. What he found was a striking absence of data, um, and where data is recorded of metadata that enables us to understand what was excavated. For the building itself, there is no discussion of any pottery shards, coins, or soil samples. 21 artifacts are recorded as found in block M8, where the church is uh, located, from January the 16th to the 19th uh, of 1932, the point when it dawned on the excavators that what it was they were unearthing, namely a Christian building. No artifacts are recorded thereafter, indicating that they gave up on this kind of distraction uh, in their haste to clear the building, make the mural secure and, sec and reveal their finds. Of the 26 artifacts altogether recorded for block eight from the start of the season's digging until January the 19th, 12 offer no recorded provenance at all. Meanwhile, a surviving excavation photograph, this one, for which no metadata has been preserved, Shows a, shows a pile of clay shards sitting within the building's walls, ceramics of which there is no record in any place. We have no idea if these belong to the church, although they surely were not excavated um, uh, there, um, uh, inside it, or as, uh, or, uh, uh, or maybe they were a heap as it were put in after they were 
um, uh, excavated. Um, whether they were brought by the um, site uh, workmen to it as a convenient store or indeed any idea of anything. From the earlier stages of the expedition, consider this account of a relief of Heracles found in the house of Dura, in a house in Dura, as is described in the preliminary report. So this is the object. Uh, here's the report. Um, this small relief, which was found last May during the excavation of a house abutting on the west wall of the so-called interior redoubt, was concealed by workmen in the rubbish heap, but finally excavated, or finally recovered, and is now in the house of the governor of the region at Deir es uh, Zair, uh, otherwise named, known as Deir es Zor. So clearly things were insufficiently organized in the Dura excavation um, to train or control the local workmen in respect of their clearing. Either they failed to realize that this was an object they were looking for rather than, to, uh, than rubbish to discard, or they had plans to sell it off-site unprovenanced on the black market. There is consequently no reliable find spot for the relief, nor any possibility of assessing if the piece, when excavated, was in an original position or had been reused as building spolia. This is broad brush land clearance, not archaeology. If we look at the famous graffiti showing warriors standing, uh, either standing or riding, many discovered in the second season of the dig, which is 1928 to 29, Mikhail Rostovtsev's preliminary report briefly touches on the buildings from which they came. Uh, one from the Temple of the Palmyrene Gods and three from a graffiti house east of the Temple of Artemis, as um, he puts it. These are, uh, Rostovtsev swiftly lumps these together as a group, uh, although they are only so because they're the same kind of artifact find in the same season, and then proceeds through a mishmash of learning and citation to use them to determine the appearance of Parthian soldiers, uh, itself a large leap since there's no reason they should not be Roman soldiers or indeed some kind of idealized soldier as visualized by the inhabitants of a garrison town. What governs this model of classification that ignores context, um, what governs this is a model of classification that ignores context coupled with the teleology of making swift assumptions about the Parthian world with no interest in how these images might have worked in the specific places of their scratching, and no attempt to use contextual archaeology for dating, presumably in part because the local excavators had never thought to supply such information. Moving from the early stages of the dig to its end, here are some examples from what Susan Matheson, the curator uh, in the Yale uh, Art Gallery from the 1970s, um, concocted out of the archival records to pass as a report on the unpublished 10th and final season of work in 1936 to 37, when in principle recording practices had been developed to their best through the long experience of the expedition. In the Citadel, which you see before you, Frank Brown's finds included 36 coins of which neither their type nor their metal content is recorded and which have apparently vanished. The Citadel tombs were uh, excavated, confirming a first century date we're told, I have no idea on what grounds, and two of these, but which two, we don't know, yielded leather shoes and boots. It's hard to conclude uh, that uh, much had really improved in terms of excavation practice since the early seasons. The result of all this is that characteristic fuzziness about what one is actually looking at, 
as if it's a photograph out of focus that defines a modern engagement with the bulk of the Dura Europos materials. Now, I'm not going to indulge here in a lament for lost knowledge or a diatribe against poor archaeology by modern standards. The interesting question is not about the positivism made impossible in the face of the archive we have, but about what conditioned the nature of this archive and the methods of archaeology that created it. It is a historical and a historiographic question on the one hand. That is, it asks about the specific conditions that determined a particular way of working and recording, sociological, economical, um, uh, conceptual, and uh, personal. On the other hand, it is a philosophical question about archaeological data and what we might call facts, about the assumptions and expectations with which they were created, the empirical value and evidential force they are accorded, and the forms of argument in which they are deployed. So my first section after this introduction is uh, called Mandate Archaeology. So let's begin. Here you see um, a map on the right of the uh, mandates, that is the British mandate of, of Mesopotamia and the British mandate of Palestine, as well as the French mandate of Syria and unmarked but in light blue um, uh, here, the French mandate of Lebanon. Um, let's begin with the Great War moment in the Middle East when Dura Europos was found. So the remains were discovered by British soldiers in March 1920, uh, just after the end of the First World War, patrolling the Euphrates in the turmoil of the fall of the Ottoman Empire when they built a trench uh, for a rifle pit. Um, so archaeology and trench building, um, uh, 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 trench making, which of course is the primary method of fighting in World War I, are closely related. Just to the north of Dura, the local capital of uh, Deir el Zor, which on the map you hear is uh, on the map you can see here is Deir al Zaur. It's not very far up the Euphrates. Um, had been the destination of the death marches of Armenians during the genocide that began in 1914 to 1915, and it was the location of a series of concentration camps only just about uh, uh, being dismantled in the 1920s. So that gives you some sense of the um, of the context. This is never mentioned in the Dura, um, uh, in any of the Dura reports, but it's really quite a traumatic context in which this is uh, going on in its period. The military presence um, as both the protection and driver of the dig was fundamental. Um, France Cumont, who is the first excavator for the French, dedicated his Fouy of 1926 quotes to the officers, junior officers and soldiers of the Army of the Levant, uh, who enabled the dig uh, in its French-controlled period, and some of the most able excavators, like Robert du Menil du Buisson, who is the first publisher of the synagogue, the man who discovered the synagogue, um, his first um, uh, the, and wrote the first book, which is in French. All these people were military men. Uh, in fact, du Menil always dressed in his military. Um, um, I was going to say costume, but we mean uniform. Um, the introduction to the sixth pre preliminary report, which is this, is by Rostovtsev. Uh, writing from Yale, pointedly comments on turmoil and insurrection in the region, only curtailed by, quotes, the devotion and courage of the heroes of the French army in maintaining law and order in the deserts. Now, this is in the mandate of Syria. The period of the Dura dig, that's 1922 to 37, 
saw the acceleration of the long collapse of direct imperial governance and the passing of political power in colonies across the world to local potentates, masked in the Middle East by the fig leaf of the League of Nations mandates for the victors of the war, the British in Palestine and Mesopotamia, which came in fact later to be divided into Iraq and Jordan, and the French in Syria and Lebanon. Yet a strange, in a strange denial of fast approaching political realities and a last gasp of archeological glory amidst imperial exploitation, this period was a golden age for European and American excavation. In the Near East, one might think not only of Dura, Dura Europos, um, which you can see uh, on the map here, um, <clears throat> but also of Harald Ingholtz, treasure grab of the dig in Palmyra in the 1920s and 30s, which is why so much of the Palmyrene art is now in, the, uh, in Copenhagen, um, or the joint expedition by the British Museum and the University of Pennsylvania Museum to Ur in southern Iraq, led by um, Leonard Woolley from 1922 to, 20, to 34. So Ur is right down here, Dura, further up, Dura's here, you can see, but it's actually uh, uh, just down the river. Or the great Megiddo adventure in the Levant. Um, so Megiddo here, just uh, here on this one, you can see it. Um, uh, uh, from 1925 to the outbreak of war in 1939, which was conducted by the Oriental Institute in Chicago. The Dura Europos excavation sits within the twilight world of the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the arrival of colonialist interests run through or as commercial companies bolstered by the Brit French and British military, where the digging of trenches for soldiers segued into the excavation of archeological trenches and the drilling for oil first found in the Middle East by the British in Persia echoed the unearthing of archeological gold. Arguably, the signal American engagement in the archeology span of the Near East at this time depended on the goodwill of uh, uh, and sincere Baptist reliefs, beliefs of one man pictured here in 1914, America's richest man. In fact, at some sites tell you America's richest ever man, John D. Rockefeller. Um, he was the founder of the monopoly of Standard Oil and when that monopoly was broken up in the teens um, uh, into five companies, he had of course major share interests in all five and his value rose to over a billion dollars um, at that period, um, which is, I, well, it's probably impossible to calculate, but certainly it's huge. In addition to being the principal financier of the Dura and Megiddo expeditions, as well as providing uh, transformative endowments for the American schools of Oriental research in Jerusalem and Baghdad, and you can see the Jerusalem School at the bottom of this slide, and establishing the Palestine Museum of Archaeology, now known as the Rockefeller Museum, um, in 1927, which is uh, the top slide, um, Rockefeller had been uh, the founder of Standard Oil, the greatest and first petroleum monopoly. Uh, the Dura enterprise, unusual in its mix of French and American cooperation, was one of a series of such ventures backed by private money channeled through prestigious institutions, whether private like American universities or public like the British Museum. It was loaded, like all these excavations, with the pressures for delivery of results, mainly defined as treasures or, or discoveries uh, related to biblical history, embedded in the rivalries of buccaneer capitalists, national museums, grand universities, ambitious funders, and Western powers 
in what would in fact turn out to be their last imperial moment. We may summarize the frame around the dig as difficult. Uh, Dura was a relatively dangerous site whose desert conditions, whether freezing in winter and impossibly hot in summer, were not easy. And those excavations were also expensive, requiring a constant appeasement of donors, especially after the stock market crash of 1929, um, and notably through spec spectacular finds. It was a, there's Dumenil, you can see on the left, uh, you can see he's in his French military dress and here is uh, in, the, in the synagogue um, that they'd just excavated. It was convenient that the two great finds after the crash were of a church discovered in January 1932 and a synagogue in November of the same year. The constant worry about money explains a number of the problems of the dig and its archival heritage, notably, it's extraordinary haste, uh, which means much was incompletely or incorrectly recorded, uh, as we've uh, uh, seen at the beginning of this lecture, the pressure for high profile discoveries and arguably the excessive finality of the site's preliminary reports. I don't know if you've looked at any of the preliminary reports, but they are among the most, um, as it were, final um, uh, overview kinds of publications you could possibly imagine very, very odd as preliminary reports. The issues of speed and money uh, underlie Rostovsev's communications with his boss, President James Angel of Yale University, who was the link to the Rockefeller money because he sat on Rockefeller's board um, uh, that gave um, uh, um, uh, donations. Um, in his letter to Angel describing the second season of work, uh, which is dated the 4th of October, 1929, Rostovsev writes as follows. Systematic and scientific excavations are a slow business. It took scores of years for the Germans to excavate Olympia, Praini, uh, uh, Magnesia on the Meander, uh, Borj Koi, etc. Many, many years for the French archaeologists uh, who were and still are working at Delphi, Delos, Thassos in Greece, and in Crete, and now many places in Syria. An important scientific excavation requires time. At Dura, we have just begun important work and by it contracted the moral obligation of carrying it on uh, to what might be termed its happy end. How many more years are required for it? It's difficult to give an exact estimate. The minimum number is five. If we had money for five years in our hands, we would be able to plan our work more systematically and more efficiently than if we can count uh, on only three years more. The rhetoric here is interesting. It makes speed essential. Implicitly, the Americans could do in five years what took the Germans and French scores of years, but argues for time. There was never enough time. Now, not entirely separable from the complex movement uh, from a colonial to a post-colonial context in the Eastern Mediterranean, lay the problem of the building of local museums, such as the Baghdad Antiquities Museum, later the Iraq Museum, established in 1926, uh, above left, um, uh, or the National Museum of Damascus, founded in 1919, to the right, uh, or indeed the Palestine Museum we mentioned in 1927. These were a key aspect of the rise of nationalisms in the Near East, making a claim for the archaeological heritage of an area, soon to become a nation, to remain in the country where it was found. This was in direct conflict with the impetus of the private funders of excavations who wanted the treasures back home. 
The problem hit crisis point with the fate of what is probably the most famous archaeological find of all time. Here you've got him, King Tut. And Howard Carter's discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings near Luxor in Egypt, 1922, entirely funded privately by the Earl of Carnarvon. Egypt had been occupied and declared itself a protectorate by the, and declared a protectorate by the British in 1914 um, in order to separate it from Ottoman suzerainty, in other words, as part of World War I. But it had declared itself unilateral independence in 1922, despite continuing British military occupation. So you had a British military power, but the political um, uh, uh, claim of the state was that it was independent. Um, that's a very strange mix. The newly independent Sultanate of Egypt was extremely reluctant to allow recently discovered antiquities to be removed abroad. And in the protracted bickering over the Tutankhamun finds, which extended uh, for eight years to 1930, ultimately the Egyptians kept everything except such items as had been illicitly pilfered. Now that model and the certain and certainly keeping the best finds in the place where they were found ultimately accounts for the Dura synagogue remaining in Damascus where it was incorporated into the museum basement. In competition with these patterns of colonial archaeology went a vibrant post or anti-colonial use of archaeology to claim the land of Palestine as rightfully Jewish by settler immigrants under the British mandate. The most important archaeologist among these emigres was Eliezer uh, Sukanik, whom you see here on the right, um, looking suitably uh, pensive about uh, a, a little clay pot, um, whose flood of finds of ancient synagogues in Palestine under the auspices of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem transformed um, the understandings of Jewish presence and, and activity in antiquity, while making at the same time a potent claim for the land in the present day. And at the top, you see the Beth Alpha synagogue, um, uh, the Beth Alpha exca excavation of 1929, which uh, revealed a very important uh, synagogue floor um, uh, uh, in the site from the sixth century, in fact. Until the foundation of the State of Israel in 1948, it was not obvious that these claims were in conflict with other native assertions of sovereignty, since all the inhabitants of the Middle East were broadly united by antipathy, more or less strong, to the dominance of the mandate powers. But from the point of view of excavation in the Eastern Mediterranean, the thrust of Jewish archaeology reflects a very different and arguably much more vibrant dynamic from that conducted by the colonial powers. Um, and so the extraordinary speed of the discovery of those synagogues in this period is a kind of evidence of that. Conceptually, Dura sits between the world of biblically guided archaeology, as well reflected in both the ventures at Megiddo and Ur, and exemplified by the work of William Foxwell Albright in the Holy Land during the British Mandate, uh, Albright being an American. Uh, this was a last flowering of late Victorian models of Christianity, where archaeology could prove scriptural truth. So most of these people are believing Christians um, uh, on the, on the um, uh, uh, um, uh, certainly on the American side, and a more historical interest in pre-Christian religions and religious change. That is, there is a difference in the circles of interest around the synagogue and the church building, 
by contrast with the other temples and finds of the site, which were so important for um, Franz Cumont and um, uh, uh, Mikhail Ostovtsev, let alone um, uh, matters that have acquired greater contemporary significance, like the fortress and the private housing, which are frankly, uh, ignored is too strong a word, but frankly, really low down the priority list for the excavators at Dura. The scholarly impetus of both Cumont and Rostovtsev lay far from the biblical brigade, even if both were deeply interested in Christian origins. But the pressures of the spectacular finds, above all one of the earliest churches and best preserved synagogues ever discovered, pushed powerfully in that direction. The fact that of all the buildings, only these two received extensive final reports speaks for itself. Likewise, both the Dura principles were at heart historians, seeking to answer answers to fundamentally historical questions through archaeology. But the discovery of biblical treasures whose scriptural relevance made up for their artistic disappointment pushed towards the treasure world of Ur or King Tut. So my second section is called Specific Problems of the Dura Dig. Here is probably the most famous of all the Dura photographs, um, uh, uh, Cumont on the left and Rostovtsev on the right in the newly discovered Mithraeum. One of the problems of colonial archeology span conducted by outsiders from far away was its distance, was its seasonal nature in the form of annual expeditions. In the case of Dura, this sense of distance from the ground, by contrast with, uh, for example, with Sukhanik in Palestine or Romano-British archeology span by the likes of Collingwood or Haverfield in England was exacerbated by the exceptional distinction of the principal excavators, Cumon and Rostovtsev, as scholars and historians, well into middle age, in high demand at home, and with little appetite for the honor, for the rigors of the field. And you cannot overestimate the importance and distinction of these two figures, both in their time and actually for the history of their disciplines as scholars. Um, the first, um, uh, the, so there are a number of entailments of the, sorry, um, the dig spanned 14 years of work, 1922 to three, that's when the French were there on their own, and then 28 to 39, um, when the French were there with Rostovtsev and Cumont in charge, uh, and the Americans were really running the dig. In that time, Cumont and Rostovtsev both visited quite briefly only four times. So you have a dig 14 years, and you have its principles there for like a week at a time, uh, only four times each. There were a number of entailments of this model of delegated power, um, where Rostovtsev in particular in the later 20s and early 30s set the conceptual frame, delivered the money, made the overall demands and oversaw publication while others did the work on the site. The first is that archeology span itself was entirely in the hands of more or less competent le lieutenants. The excavators were not leaders in the question of interpreting or understanding the site, and thus their hands-on decisions about what would be recorded or discarded were effectively controlled or impeded by interpretative frames made up far away in North America or Paris. In the case of recording practices, the principals simply left these to the discretion and judgment of their lieutenants in the field. Now, when I started to work on this, and in fact wrote this first paper, um, it was before the 24th of February of uh, uh, this year. Um, in that, on the 24th of February, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine. And one of the, there are many interesting parallels 
um, which we'll touch on, but one is um, Putin's failure uh, militarily to take over Ukraine has some relation to the Tsar sitting in Yale um, trying to conduct an excavation where really he knows nothing. It, the, all the information comes from the generals in the field. So there's a, there's a kind of interesting parallelism in how, um, as it were, monarchic um, instigators who supply the money and the, et cetera, um, operate. Now, in the words of Fergus Miller, quotes, the involvement of Kumar and Rostovtsev in the excavations was fundamentally a matter of conception and interpretation, preconception, one might say. The preconception problem is key. Dura was important to both Kumar and Rostovtsev because its role was to provide empirical evidence to prove a series of pre-existing positions. Now that's a very bad way to run a dig. Actually, it's a very bad way to run any kind of scholarly project. Um, when it's structured by a scholarly teleology, itself bolstered by the preeminence of the project's directors as ancient historians. It extends to the field excavators themselves being primed to produce facts on the ground that were needed to sustain a substantial portion of a stream of publications, especially those produced by Rostovtsev during the extent of the dig, which were themselves subsections of much larger, larger intellectual positions and assumptions he'd adopted in his long and productive career. Um, there was much less focus on other kinds of questions, such as the military nature of the site or its domestic uh, life and housing. The archeological evidence discovered in the field was then swiftly subjected to spectacular smoothing in aid of coherence in the remarkably interpretative series of preliminary reports. These were published at breakneck speed um, to keep up with the dig and to trumpet its importance, effectively so as to bolster the funding. From the first excavation of the joint Yale and French Academy of Inscriptions and Letters excavation of uh, 1928 to the eighth season of 1934-5, a series of magisterial volumes briskly emerged, published between 1928 and 1939. The haste to get things done before the money ran out, especially after the stock market crash of 1929, uh, gave rise to a tragically slapdash model of recording the excavated materials as we've seen, though one that was not entirely out of step with the archeological standards of its time. Scholars have been critical of many aspects of Rostovtsev's interpretative in assumptions about the site and the contemporary uh, projection of ancient Dura Europos is a very different place from Rostovtsev's 1920s to 30s fantasy. But the critiques pressing on specific unsustainable assumptions, such as that implied by this map, where you see Dura uh, Europos here as a central node of enormous trade route that crosses the whole of Eurasia, um, uh, uh, which make Dura a, a caravan city in a vast Eurasian trade network, its connection to a substantial category of Iranian art created in the Parthian era as a um, a, a very famous major 200-page article by Rostovtsev, uh, mainly fantasy. It's overwhelming religious rather than military and civic implications, which is about the emphasis of what to excavate and what to publish. Um, uh, while they have uh, been in their particulars um, incisive, these critiques, have insufficiently grasped the underlying metaphysics driving the enterprise. This is a very, very specific to Rostovtsev, and in part explains his extraordinary scholarly charisma. 
in presenting a total historical world picture founded equally in material and documentary historical arguments that was compelling in its time. When Sir Mortimer Wheeler wrote in 1932, quotes, what Dura Europos is for the west of the Parthian zone, Taxila is for the east. So um, Taxila is here and Dura is there. So this as it were is a, a portion of this map is the um, uh, Ward Perkins image. Um, what he'd done was entirely bought in to Rostovtsev's Eurasian model of historical and cultural interconnection. So my third section is Rostovtsev's Dura. Now, before discussing the drives that underlie the Dura project and were made to frame its evidential finds in a Procrustean bed of mystical lunacy, frankly outdated by the 1920s, it's worth noting that Dura was, on my account, the third set of archeological discoveries on which a similar act of interpretative and conceptual framing was perpetrated by Rostovtsev, in both other cases quite as influential over the long durée as his account of Dura Europos, and in my view, in both cases, equally untenable. Ah, this is frozen. Sorry about this, my slide, for some reason, my slide is frozen. Let me, um, oh, there we are. Now, the first of these was the model of Greco-Scythian culture in the Black Sea region, which remains dominant. Um, so here you have a, a number of famous slides, and this is, now we're right in the Ukraine. We're in, in, in the Crimea and the, uh, and the Ukraine, precisely that area that, is so fundamentally central to Mother Russia um, that uh, Putin has to invade it. Um, this, the model of Greco-Scythian culture remains dominant following Rostovtsev's interpretations in the late Tsarist, of the late Tsarist finds there um, with frankly little scholarly credibility. And anyone who wants to read Kaspar Meyer's excellent book on the subject uh, can uh, see a very fine analysis of the problems. Uh, the second was the category of sacro-idyllic wall painting in Pompeii, invented by Rostovtsev again before the fall of the Tsars, and still current, here are some fine examples, both actually in the Met, um, but founded on unsustainable assumptions. All these, as well as his account of Dura, are rooted in some very peculiar late Romanov presumptions, um, but the excavations in Syria took place at a different phase in his career, in exile after the revolution and as part of a long and profound personal war against the forces of Bolshevism. Rostovtsev's education and its resultant ideological frame were molded in a time of radical political change, intellectual openness and creativity in the late Romanov uh, Academy, as well as a sense of imperialist nationalism in the spirit of Holy Mother Russia. A significant foundation of this project has been the use of archaeology in the region around the Black Sea to prove the twin strands of civilized Hellenism and Iranian identity as exemplified by the Scythians um, that were as something native to Russia and hence to Russian identity. And here again, we are treading on uh, Putin territory. Crucial to this venture and in deep sympathy with the atmosphere of 
occultist spirituality uh, that infused pre-revolutionary upper-class Russia in the so-called Silver Age. I show you the Silver Age Museum in Moscow, but it has, um, a, 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 as it were, it's, it's a fine building of precisely this period. Um, crucial to that is the conception of monarchy by the grace of God, a quotation from Rostovtsev. Rostovtsev traced the deep indigenous origins of this through the archaeological discussion of the visual cultures of the Greco Scythians as rooted in Iranian influence. Now, all this is related to a potent Euro Eurasian fantasy in late imperial Russian Orientalism, which is not to be confused with uh, Edward Said's model, model of Orientalism, as a fundamental spiritual drive animating the Asian element of Russian identity. The key elements for Rostovtsev in this heady ideological mix are sacrality and religion the deep ancestor of Russian orthodoxy, monarchy, the deep ancestor of the Tsarist system, and an Eastern locus founded on the interface of Iranians and Greeks, rather than the Mediterranean. This last, placing the fundamental dynamic of Eurasian culture in the intersection of Iranian with Greek, constructs a set of origins for Russia free of the West, as if the key links were the orthodox line from Constantinople, the second Rome, to Moscow, the third Rome, without the need for the first Rome. And that link, of course, again, the Ukraine is central because that is when, uh, where St. Cyril and Methodius landed through in Crimea and then up into Kiev. That is the move of orthodoxy um, from Byzantium to Russia. The exclusion of the degenerate West, sadly, the new home to which the exile from the Soviet revolution um, had driven him, uh, is the key theme of the work on Pompeii which assumes that the Campanian landscapes are copies of Hellenistic landscapes and that elements of sacrality with which Rostovtsev so persuasively argued they were imbued actually represent the sacralization of the Hellenistic East. In other words, his Pompeii work is actually the same ideologically as the Crimean work. All these themes culminate, culminate in the long excavation at Dura Europos. They are expressed most explicitly in Rostovtsev's books of 1932 on the caravan cities and on Dura, Dura Europos itself of 1938, both written in the full flush of work on the dig, the publishing of its preliminary reports and the disseminating of the excitement through public talks. In the former of these books, Caravan Cities, Dura becomes the fundamental node of caravan trade to Palmyra and the west from the Euphrates and eastwards to Mesopotamia and Iran. But Rostovtsev's account is above all about the religious buildings and finds. In the uh, second book, uh, the, uh, the book on Dura Europos and its art, um, after a sketch of ancient Eurasia from Greece to India, he states that what he wanted from the excavation was to throw light on the problem of the origin of Greco-Semitic civilization in Mesopotamia, I'm quoting, which was unquestionably from its early uh, beginnings closely connected with the equally enigmatic Greco-Iranian civilization of Parthia, and Dura has not disappointed me. Um, the reason that both of these civilizations are enigmatic is that they're all fantasies, but the point is Dura proves them. Notably, and I quote here again, there, was, there is found a kind of religious koine, um, common world, similar, familiar to all the Semites and to the Semitized Greeks and uh, Iranians throughout Babylonia, Mesopotamia, Syria, and Arabia. This koine was probably evolved in the Hellenistic epoch and accepted both by the Parthians and the Romans. 
The greatest creation of the koiné was solar henotheism, which in this period became more and more accentuated. Of course, solar henotheism, that is to say, um, believing in one god, um, uh, is uh, 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 ancestral to Christianity, Russian Orthodox Christianity. In other words, the drive for the Dura project and the excavation of the Pompeii of the Syrian desert, quotes, was the Near Eastern model of a force centered on the meeting of Iran with Greece, from which civilization in the form of a solar henotheism, ancestral to Christianity, spread centrifugally across Eurasia in the nexus of the caravan cities between East and West. The model was derived in part from Cumon, especially his work on the, um, the, the uh, uh, Persian, but also um, later Roman god Mithras, but was um, inflected by the key ancestral and sacred ideology derived from the last years of pre-revolutionary imperial Russia. It is the art history of Dura's wall paintings that justifies the broadest sweep of Rostovtsev's conclusions that quotes, the art of Dura is not Greco-Syrian or Greco-Semitic, but Mesopotamian. We have tentatively given it the name of Mesopotamian, though we might as well call the artistic, it the artistic coiner of the Parthian empire. Again, quotation. This justifies uh, Rostovtsev then to compare it with the work of early Hindu artists and the arts of the reformed Buddhist religion, that is um, uh, art of the same period in India, effectively determining Dura as a unique representative of a Greco-Iranian cultural as well as religious centrifuge located in the Parthian world with its influence springing, spinning out across Eurasia into India and the West. The final stages of the Dura book culminate on the proposition that what is apparent in the frescoes of Dura Europos represents the origins of Christian art, and notably that many features of late Roman art and early Byzantine Christian art had their source in Mesopotamian art. That's a quotation. Uh, while, again quoting, we are indebted to Dura for revealing to us the phase of transition between the late Achaemenid Greco-Persian art and that of the Sasanian period. Now this is broad sweep history written with the use of images and artifacts only analyzed in very cursory detail uh, entirely on the conceptual lines of his earlier work on Greco Scythia as the genesis of Russia, notably a book called Iranians and Greeks in South Russia. Um, that is the historical thesis is one that, and I quote here Caspar Meyer, exemplifies the kind of untenable proposition which the visual remains of antiquity are still made to support, that images can reveal to us what the past really looked like and what the ancients believed rather than how they constructed their beliefs about the world. Rostovtsev's approach suffers from the tendency, still commonplace in some areas of classical archeology, span to prioritize supposedly invisible content over the visible forms of representation and hence to mistake sectional interests of representation for historical reality. Beyond this, and here we move to what I provocatively called earlier mystical lunacy, Rostovtsev's religious and um, artistic koiner of Greeks, Iranians, and Iranians throughout Babylonia, Mesopotamia, Syria, and Arabia uh, 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 within the Parthian world ultimately arises from the urge to buttress the uncertain present with reference to primordial origins, the oriental legacy of modern Christianity. The historical difference between the Greco-Scythian work and that on Dura is in Rostovtsev's personal circumstances when he produced it. 
despite the post-revolutionary date of Iranians and Greeks in South Russia, 1922, as you can see here, one of the books he the first books he published in exile, it was the product of research, including archaeological research conducted in late Romanov St. Petersburg. The work on Dura, effectively transposing all the primordial origins of Russian Orientalist Christianity onto a small town in Syria, projects the narratives of the pre-revolutionary past made nostalgic by exile from Russia, closer still to the site of Christian origins and the interface of Hellenism with Persia. While scholars have seen Rostovsev's views as strongly colored by back projection of the Red Army and Soviet revolution into, Roman, into the Roman Empire, that's a quote from Simon James, they've not sufficiently disentangled the full freighting of an ancestralist imperial ideology exacerbated by the traumas of refugee status projected into a space that never had anything to do with Russia in order to create a fantasy, uh, uh, what might have been narrative about worlds that were not only lost, but had arguably never existed. Now, of course, there is no problem uh, about, the about interpretative disagreements or changing the narrative about late ancient Syria over generations. Nor should we always need, need always to evoke in extensive detail the ideological and psychological constraints of earlier scholarship. But the problem with the Dura dig is much greater than interpretative disagreement and is founded on the complexities of a conceptual worldview almost incomprehensible to the contemporary student, but in fact, suddenly one made so important because once Putin gave up um, uh, communism and turned to orthodoxy, you had all the elements for that mystical vision of Russia, which uh, just as it drove Rostovsev's scholarship is driving Putin's invasion. All the facts uh, on the basis of which uh, the various stories of Dura must be told are current stories and anyone's going forward. These are themselves the construct of an excavation whose practices, classifications and conceptual frame, not to speak of preliminary reports that were final reports in all but name, was entirely in the grip of Rostovtsev's Eurasian psychodrama. That magnificent narrative, digging up the significance of a garrison on the Euphrates into proof of cultural transformation, including Sasanian and Christian origins on a macro scale, is not only nonsense, but needs to be extricated object by object before any later scholar can attempt an alternative interpretation. As in so many cases, where the metadata is lost, is inadequate or lost, or where the object survives largely or only in the drawings and reconstructions manufactured by the original excavators working in the uh, vortex of Rostovtsev's visionary imagination. I've given you a photograph of him looking visionary, almost certainly without full knowledge of its extent and implications. All we can do is work with facts that were unconsciously manipulated towards an untenable ideology and teleology. Of course, the tragedy of civil war, the so-called Islamic State, and what has happened to Syria, as well as at the, uh, at the site in the last decade, which is a truly horrible story, makes the scholarly impossibility of going much beyond what evidence the joint French and American expedition provided so much more agonizing. But the point is that whatever interpretations this generation or the next will wish to supply, from the point of view of our empirical knowledge and evidential base, the site of Al-Saliyah on the Euphrates will always be Rostovtsev's Dura. Thank you.
Thank you so much for that wonderful talk. What I'd like to do now is invite you all to type your questions into the chat and I will read them to Professor Elsner. Um, I will start off by asking um, you what your I idea of the recent work um, that Yale has done and Boston College has done the exhibition that was quite some time ago, I guess now, and then this recent conference um, that, that was held uh, earlier this winter. Um, how do you envision those as helping to move studies uh, about Dura along, or do they? Um, so the, the, there are two sides of this then. One is the, as it were, museological side and the, the terrible truth is that Yale removed most of Dura off its display uh, for many, many years. And it's only now come back in the last, let's say, six or seven years. They've put it back on. Not, I mean, I think one could complain about it, but still, at least it's better that, it's, that it be there. Um, uh, so that's one issue. The, so there are a number of very good new archaeologists. There was a French dig that um, began a, 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 an attempt to redig the site um, that went to pieces, of course. Now, the, the archaeology is over. Um, uh, ISIS um, uh, took control, and uh, what they did is they, first of all, they let out lots, uh, uh, plots to um, anyone who wanted them to excavate with a bulldozer, with, with, with diggers and bulldozers. Then they took it over themselves and did it themselves. So they've completely stripped the site. It looks like a series of craters now. Um, and anything that was left, any there, there is no, I, I cannot believe there is any knowledge left to find there. It's a tra tragedy. Um, and they've perpetrated that tragedy, not only in Dura, but anywhere they went. Um, so that's one of the terrible, terrible stories of our time. Um, so that's why we're stuck. We're stuck with this archive, this archive um, which has been created through um, the madhouse vision that we are watching Putin extract, uh, exact in the Ukraine. That's why it is both extremely interesting in a contemporary way. How do you, how do you um, see in any kind of objectivity if you can only see through the eyes of Putin? That's the problem because it's been framed. Rostovsev is not evil like Putin, but the ideological frame of, of this kind of Russian fantasy land is governing everything. That's my claim. So that's the big problem. And I think archaeology is not sat down archivally and historiographically enough to dismantle these assumptions because we just, you know, you, you see a few facts and you try to build a story. Very, very difficult to do. So there have been very important work, particularly Simon James and Jen Baird, who've attempted to work on the buildings, work on the fort, but they're always working through um, this weird, um, smeared, dirty glass that we, we can't get beyond because, uh, you know, we may have artifacts, but we know too little about them. You know, we just don't know where they were. Where they, we, there's so little we know, there's, or so much we don't know, let's put it that way. Um, uh, although Yale has done a marvellous job in making them available, publicising them. You can find every photograph now on Art Store. It's publicly available. They've done a really great job so far as they can. Um, so this is the great difficulty. I think there are really interesting and important new questions, of course, and questions that could put Dura in the context, take it out of this kind of Eurasian context and look more locally and compare with Palmyra and so on. But of course, the archaeology of everywhere in that area. I mean, Hatra was terribly important because Hatra is the equivalent of Dura, if you like, but on the Parthian side, one a city that was never 
um, um, uh, Roman, but you know the Hatra's been completely decimated. Um, uh, I haven't heard if it's as bad as Dura, but one would assume it is as bad. Um, and it was anyway not as well excavated, if well, if good is the right kind of terminology for what we're talking about. So, um, so of course I'm in favour of what people are doing, but I do think they need to grasp the difficulty and confront uh, having to think about um, mad ideologies. And don't underestimate the importance of, I mean, Rostovsev, he's, he, the man was a genius. Uh, and if you think of his most famous books are the two books on, on social economic history, where he writes on the Hellenistic world, he writes on the Roman world, enormous books that are written in America to justify um, uh, bourgeois capitalism as a war against uh, communism. And uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, you know, it's amazing ideological stuff, those, those books. Um, hugely dominant and they're creative of um, economic history, despite the fact that most later economic historians were Marxists, of course, they disagreed with every assumption Rostov said had. Thanks. Um, I have a, actually a follow-up question um, to that and then also just generally. Um, one thing that always strikes me about Rostov is that his conception of, of Central Asia um, and interactions really are indebted to Droysen and his conception of the Hellenistic world, this East meets West and this fusion that then produces Christianity. Um, yeah. and, and also going on to Droysen's own day, just this teleological line to that. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that or um, had, had given that any thought in, in your conception of, of this, which is very persuasive and very interesting. Um, I totally agree. I mean, Droysen is very important. He's very important also for Cumont, who is, if you like, um, a slightly older colleague and influence on Rostovsev. So it, it, as it, it comes from more than one direction, that. Um, but what Droysen does is, of course, it's a German model. Um, whereas, and Rostovsev, you know, he, he published many things in Germany. He's a marvelous, it's an amazing scholar. He writes, writes in German, French, English. He's an incredible scholar. His English is... Uh, and his French are both ex slightly eccentric, but only slightly, you know, um, uh, he, it, uh, and of course in Russian, um, but it's the, it's the particular twist of, um, of a kind of, it's, it's, it's the mystical twist. It's, it's, you know, it's Rasputin in the court of, of the Tsars that is the kind of guiding um, model and to us it has to be mad you, it just looks mad it wasn't mad to him I mean it was just what Russia was it's the it's the proof of a sacred monarchy you know this man is a total fan of Nicholas II as it were um, what he would have thought of Putin today God knows but probably wouldn't you know <laughs> I'm not sure thanks um, I, I also had a question uh, that um, that relates to the place of the, the, the synagogue at Dura um, in the in, in sort of its context in sort of late and or, or Roman and then late antique synagogues, but then also within the Roman Empire and sort of the imagery and the iconography that we see there. And I was wondering if you could talk to speak to that a little bit for, for the students. So that is, a, of course, the synagogue is so, so strange. It's the weird find. Almost every other synagogue that we have dug in Palestine, we have effectively the floor. And I always like to say to students here, look at the floor 
of the building you're in, whatever building it is, and tell us if that's all that survived, how you would reconstruct, what you would reconstruct, you know, what the hell are we looking at? And that is a problem. It's a signal, even though they, they, of course, these synagogue floors are much more decorative than our ones, but you know, parquet wouldn't tell us much. Maybe it would tell us more than we think, but not that much. Um, now, what we have in Dura is, is not a floor. We, the one thing we don't have is the floor. We've got the walls and the ceiling. I mean, the ceiling tiles, it's, it's incredible. First thing. Second thing, it's earlier. It's significantly earlier than any of the Palestine sites. Um, and that's striking and interesting. Um, and, you know, that date we really can accept because it was demolished and we can date the, you know, very pretty precisely when it was, when it, when it went down. Um, so um, it's, a, it's a very, very, it's, a, it's an extraordinary revelation. I mean, imagine every synagogue ever created looking something like Dura. I mean, you know, it changes, it changes, especially the um, old Protestant model of a Judaism without art. I mean, that was mad, totally mad. Um, although, um, in 1900, if you held that model, it was completely true because then nobody found anything, any Jewish imagery of the time. So it, ju it just shows how things can change in these lights. But the other thing that's really important uh, historiographically about the Dura Synagogue is, is the date of finding, you know, 19, uh, um, it's found in November 1932. Um, by January 1933 in Germany, it's a perfect example of Entartete Kunst, of degenerate art, the degenerate art of Semites, which of which the Nazis would make a major exhibition in 1937. So it, it is in that, now what Rostov doesn't share that view. He wants it to be in this kind of Parthian fantasy land, um, but you could see how other views could, could, could move. And um, uh, that, that has, has its strength. Not very pleasant, but anyway. So I think I think the synagogue is incredibly important and interesting in these respects. I think it is not what Rostovsev and Kumor were interested in. They, you know, in a sense, it's a great disappointment to them to have found it. On the other hand, that did help. Because the, what the interesting thing they discovered, this is remember in it's all after the crash. So think of, things are hunky-dory until the crash, then suddenly um, you're completely reliant on Rockefeller's own pocket. Um, and Rockefeller's pocket is relatively constrained. Um, and so it's harder and harder to get money. Um, and they, um, and then when there isn't that much excitement about the, um, uh, the church, actually Rostov said, right, someone, well, I, let's hope we can find a synagogue because maybe the Jews have got more money. So it become, you know, par part of the pragmatic mechanics of the dig. And this is, you know, this is still true if you, in, you know, in Oxford, my colleague Bert Smith goes round New York regularly, as it were, selling his great, great dig in aphrodisiacs, because in the end, it can't happen unless there's funding. So that problematic of the whimsical nature of funding is very deep. We should never underestimate it in, in archaeology. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the synagogue had a place to play there. Thanks. We have a question. Um, has there been follow-up study on Rostovsev's mystical ideas, taking that track and understanding his original interests? 
um, not enough. That is to say, uh, I mean, I don't know, in, 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 in generally in archaeology, in history, Rostov's have been a great hero. So, and he remains a great hero. He's an extraordinary scholar, incredible scholar. Um, so there have been revisionisms of this and that, but the, but it's my contention really that we have to understand uh, something of the core ideology. And that core ideology is very distant from anything we would start with. Whether when, and when I say we, I mean pretty well anybody living currently in the United States, pretty well anybody living currently in most parts of Western Europe. Um, although I think it's a very, uh, I think Putin offers something very parallel and you can see both its dangers. You can see, um, you can see what's stultifying about it. That is, but but also it's completely self-fulfilling. That's the 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 power of it. You know, so everything is about um, um, uh, the threat from outside, the 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 need to um, consolidate with territory, the need to have territory that gives you the Christian origins of Russia, that gives you the. Greek, Greek origins of Russia, the Ukraine is central to this. The fantasy that Ukraine can be separated from Russia, which is a nice sort of liberal Western kind of dream, and a currently a Ukrainian dream, that's completely off the negotiating table from the point of view of a, a, a Rostovsian mystic. So the, um, we do need to understand, for not just because, who cares about Dura Europos in a way, but goodness, to understand our own current world politics, we need to get a grasp of that view. That seems to me its most important side, and the work hasn't been done. It's partly because um, scholarship has tended to be resistant to historiography, if you like, or um, ideological history, uh, because why should that matter for Dura Europos where we're interested in the site, in a, in a time far away? But I want to contend that you can't make that separation. Well, thank you very much. And I, I want everyone to join me in thanking Professor Elsner for speaking to us uh, today. That's been a, um, a, great, uh, a great privilege to hear this lecture and a boon to the class. I know we're all very excited about his lecture. And Professor Elsner, I should say, has scholarship that I've enjoyed for many years and it has been very influential in my own thinking about uh, approaching art history in the ancient world too. So I'm very pleased that he joined us today. Um, I would like to invite everyone to please join us for the next lecture in our series this Wednesday, May 11th, when Zev Weiss will speak to us about the synagogue and the shadow of the temple and after its destruction. The lecture is free and open to the public, but Zoom registration is required. You can register on the Oregon Humanities Center website. Information can be found on the OHC website in the university's events calendar. Thanks very much. <laughs>